Hello and welcome to the 16th Geopolitical Economy Hour, the fortnightly show in which we discuss the political and geopolitical economy of our times. I'm Radhika Desai. And I'm Michael Hudson. And we are recording this show on the last day of what may well be remembered as a historic BRICS summit. Defying no end of gleeful predictions in the Western press about the BRICS irrelevance, disunity, mendaciousness, authoritarianism, and whatnot, the five major countries that today constitute the BRICS, despite their relative poverty, um, constitute a larger proportion of the world economy, measured by PPPs, um, that is to say purchasing power parity, um, and they have been able to come together and do some amazing things. The Western media, for example, has been trying to drive a wedge between China and Russia on the one hand, who are said to be eager to expand the BRICS, and India and Brazil and South Africa on the other, who seem, are said to be reluctant to do so. But despite all these, all the predictions about the disunity and the fracas that would ensue with, the, uh, with China having placed the... the, 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 the um, uh, 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 inclusion of new members on the agenda. The fact of the matter is that the BRICS meeting has closed today. The BRICS summit in Johannesburg has closed today with the, with the inclusion of uh, six new members. So that's Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Iran, Ethiopia, Egypt, and Argentina. Given the large number of West Asian and North African members here, we can begin to wonder what this is going to do to US influence in what's generally called the Middle East. The BRICS countries have not only admitted these new members, but they have also agreed to set down the rules and procedures by which a large number of new members will be inducted. Because as you know, dozens of other countries have expressed an interest in the BRICS. So it's quite possible that the BRICS may well become the institutional foundation of a of the world majority that uh, as it's as the global south and 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 russia are increasingly being called um they have done more things the western press has also sought to portray these countries the brics countries as little more than a bunch of autocracies or very iffy democracies uh, but in fact, despite the, this, the, such propaganda, what we've seen in the BRICS summit is that they have been focused on presenting a very different vision of the world order, one based on development, on people-centered development. And this has been expressed in a direct confrontation with the Western conception of the world order, uh, which has, of course, been dressed up in the, in the garb of human rights and democracy, but for decades has brought only poverty and exploitation to much of the world. Well, in many ways, this was uh, a preliminary meeting just to set the stage for what's going to come. Uh, and at this stage, I think all the BRICS can do is to make arrangements among themselves. And the easiest thing to do, as we've discussed before, is to trade in their own currencies and to arrange currency swaps uh, before trying to create a new kind of bank or other... Uh, uh, means of uh, credit financing. But the real problem is uh, going to be the relationship between the BRICS and the West. How can they create a new international order uh, that we've been discussing 
while they have to pay all of the neo-colonial burden uh, of their foreign dollar debt and the foreign uh, ownership of their oil and uh, mining rights and public utilities. How can they enforce uh, a, a climate cleanup costs on uh, a foreign oil and mining uh, uh, pollution uh, if the current international law says that uh, the companies have a right to sue uh, any government for a new tax on uh, multinational firms or new regulations. Uh, and so that it means the government has to pay all of the cleanup costs, all of the external diseconomies, uh, and essentially they're put into an even worse uh, locked-in position today than they were uh, in the colonial uh, period. So. Uh, how can they defend themselves from this kind of uh, U.S.-sponsored order and uh, the regime change for countries that try to create uh, an alternative to it? All that's going to have to wait for the future BRICS meetings, uh, and we really can't even uh, begin to discuss that now. We've discussed uh, what we thought in earlier episodes of this. Absolutely, Michael. You know, I mean, the kinds of problems you're talking about, I mean, the, the BRICS agenda is really a very, very big and tall one. So all we can expect at the moment is that the BRICS have only made a beginning, but a beginning they definitely have made. Like you say, you're talking about the international monetary system and the financial arrangements. And the fact of the matter is that, again, the Western press was sort of brimming with stories about how difficult, if not impossible, it would be for the BRICS to do anything uh, that would dent the position of the dollar. But as you know, de-dollarization is not only ongoing, but the BRICS are very aware of the need to carry it forward. And this meeting, the summit has also closed with an agreement to set up a commission to discuss exactly what steps the BRICS countries may realistically take to begin to disentangle itself as an organization, as a grouping of countries from the tentacles of the dollar system, which have proven so uh, 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 so uh, 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 adverse to their interests. In addition, the, the BRICS countries have also put forward uh, a, a peace plan for Ukraine, once again, emphasizing the need to negotiate. And this could not form a starker contrast to the West and the manner in which it has continued fueling a conflict for its own completely uh, uh, short-term interests of uh, and, and, and the short-term interests of their corporations. So in all of these ways, the fact of the matter is that the BRICS summit are presenting a, an alternative, an alternative that's not just about the, the institutional arrangements and the technicalities, but it is an alternative vision of the world order. On the one side, you have imperialism and economic subordination, which is what the West is offering. And on the other side, you have a world order which is based on cooperation, on peace, and above all, on development. So as we were watching all this, Michael and I thought what we should really do is we should take a deep, deep dive into the basics of what we are doing, into the basics of geopolitical economy, into the basics of our perspective, which in fact is very different from what is on offer in the mainstream media and even in many sections of the left which is going to also, however, be able, uh, going to also allow you to sort of see through the smoke and mirrors created by the dominant approaches. So the term geopolitical economy, as we see it, encompasses political economy, that is to say, an understanding of the domestic structures of a society, 
economy and polity altogether, as well as the manner in which these domestic structures determine how every country relates to other societies in a pattern of international relationships, because it's what a country is like inside that determines how it relates to countries outside. That's why it's important to distinguish, for example, between the foreign policies of imperialist powers, such as the United States or Britain or France, from the foreign policies of other powers, whether it's China or even some powers, say like India or Brazil, which are not exactly socialist, but nevertheless, they do not have the same imperial background. Um, so we see international relationships as being rooted in domestic relationships. And the term geopolitical economy is therefore not just about the international, but equally refers to the domestic, not just about nations, but also about classes. Well, the reason for all of this uh, that Radhika and I have been discussing uh, is that all economies today are facing similar financial problems, especially the linkage between bank credit uh, and housing debt, uh, problems of local financing, uh, public financing, because states and provinces uh, can't create their own money and credit in the way that a national government can do. So these domestic problems interact with the international economy. Uh, and that's what we want to focus on uh, today. Uh, at present, that means interacting with a US-centered, dollarized, neoliberal economy, which is subject to rules set by the International Monetary Fund and the uh, US State Department. And uh, we're going to focus on how these domestic problems interact with the way in which the global economy is structured. And that analysis is going to explain why a new international economic order is needed to prevent the global majority from uh, having to go down the same financialized, debt-burdened economic polarization that has pushed the United States and the European economies into the post-industrial stagnation uh, that they're now in. Absolutely. In one sense, you know, uh, one of the things, Michael, that what you're saying reminds me of is that we talk about the world splitting into two camps. On the one hand, the camp of the old imperialist powers, and on the other hand, the camp of the world majority. But these camps are not just essentially the same thing, just pitted against one another. On the contrary, they represent qualitatively different models of economic development. Uh, and uh, And key in this difference is, of course, that the world majority is increasingly beginning to reject the model of neoliberal financialized capitalism. And this has been one of the key uh, objects of our debate. So what we want to do is essentially, I suppose what we are saying about geopolitical economy is it's really just a sound materialist and historical way um, of trying to understand how that the world is structured into a hierarchy of nations, a hierarchy originally created with the beginnings of capitalism and the imperialism that went along with it. Uh, so how the world is structured in a hierarchy, but also how this hierarchy reflects the internal class relations of each country. So what we're going to do in this show is we want to set up exactly the main ways in which our perspective differs from what it, what other people uh, other people's perspectives, the mainstream as well as certain left wing ones. And the best way to do it was we thought we thought of some dozen principal ways in which our perspective differs. So we thought we would just go through them. So one by one. So the first one is the the way we think about things. We don't 
think that you know sort of nations are irrelevant only classes matter or or what have you or that classes don't matter only nations matter we put both nation and class into a single perspective uh, don't you think so michael well uh, there's been a whole shift in the way people are thinking uh, back in the 1960s when i was talking to uh, uh, liberals and to uh, the left wing uh, and uh, uh, Marxists, uh, they they opposed nationalism. They were just coming out of World War II, and they thought the lesson of World War II was if you have nationalism, you're going to have rivalries, and that they're going to go to war uh, like Germany did and like the European countries did, England uh, uh, in World War One. and they thought the solution was going to be uh, an uh, international uh, order where everybody will be one happy family. Uh, as if getting rid of nationalism would cure the rivalries. And uh, what nobody really anticipated so clearly was that the, uh, there has been an internationalism, but it's been a unipolar internationalism that uh, is leading to war is the United States has basically declared war on the whole rest of the world with the 800 military bases uh, interfering at, uh, with one country after another. And it's been uh, waging war almost the entire time since 1945, or at least since 1950. Uh, maybe a few years that uh, it hasn't been at war. So the fact is that today's internationalism and globalization is a war economy. And uh, the war, the military spending by the United States has forced other countries to divert a lot of their uh, uh, economic surplus and government revenue towards uh, military defense uh, instead of putting in place the infrastructure that they'd all uh, been expected to do after uh, World War uh, II. And they've also become very dependent on uh, trade in oil, in food, monopolized technology, uh, computer chips, pharmaceuticals that are controlled by the United States as an economic weapon to replace the overt military colonialism uh, of uh, Europe with a, a financial and uh, uh, international investment colonialism, uh, all that's backed by uh, an enormous amount of military spending. So normally we would say that uh, uh, what's happened in the world is, going, is reflecting national self-interest. And that's what everybody expected after uh, World War II. They thought that, well, economic self-interest is going to determine the shape of the world. Uh, but uh, what America's neocons imagine uh, is a policy that serves their self-interest uh, turns out to have led to deindustrializing the United States economy because the U.S. self-interest is to reduce its, uh, its uh, living standards, to cut back wage levels, to polarize the economy, and to define America's self-interest as to transferring as much money as possible into the wealthiest 10%. So instead of uh, the U.S. self-interest being the self-interest of the 99% or uh, labor, it's a self-interest of the financial class, and that has determined uh, the international policy that led to uh, inviting China into the World Trade Organization to uh, essentially use uh, inexpensive Chinese labor as a fight against uh, U.S. living standards. And so there is a class element uh, in all of this. Uh, this uh, Bill Clinton uh, started it all with uh, his anti-labor moves and uh, uh, the, the, that the linkage between uh, international interest and uh, that sort of conceals uh, the class interest. And the question 
for the BRICS is going to be, uh, what are you going to, uh, what is your national self-interest as it affects uh, the class interests? Michael, you're, you're quite right to go back to the post-Second World War period because, you know, in a certain sense, what you see happening in the post-Second World War period, the reason why, for example, nationalism gets such short shrift, particularly in the Western discourse, is that that's the moment at which essentially the United States, in the interest of its own empire building, is trying to discredit nations. It's trying to say that everybody should join in its own cosmopolitan vision of a single world order in which nation states sort of step back. They don't intervene in economies anymore, which allows the most powerful nation state, namely the United States, push the interests of its corporations without any restriction from other countries. Of course, the United States did not get what it wanted, but the discursive discrediting of nationalism had to do very much with that. And of course, the fact that there had been two world wars in the recent past helped the case that the US was trying to make. Of course, the two world wars were not just caused, they were not just caused by nation states. They were also fought by nation, those nation states were also fought by other nation states. So there were nation states on both sides. So, but nevertheless, somehow the United States tried to equate nationalism with Nazism and that sort of thing. But in reality, there was another, uh, another fact of that moment in history that uh, would not allow nations to go away. And that was the decolonization of uh, the uh, countries that had been colonized by the various European powers. Um, so this decolonization essentially put a positive spin on nationalism because what these newly independent countries were going to do uh, was they were going to essentially uh, uh, have uh, uh, left-leaning, socialistic forms of development in which the state, representing the vast majority of the people, many of whom, you know, the vast masses that had fought for independence and so on, the, the state representing the interests of these people would try to fashion a form of development that would uh, serve the interests of the whole community. So it's not just that, say, for example, that China or Vietnam became communist, but also countries like India or Mexico or Brazil or what have you were all pursuing forms of many African countries. They were consciously pursuing forms of development that were in the that was supposed to be in the interest of the vast majority of the people. So in that sense, there was both a certain type of cosmopolitanism, which was in the service of the continuation of imperialism in a new form, what Kwame Nkrumah called neocolonialism, was standing side by side with uh, the, uh, the, 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 the positive interpretation of nations and nationalism. Well, the U.S. Uh, sponsored uh, kind of internationalism really is finance capitalism. Uh, and nationalism tends to be industrial because uh, you want to uh, build up your independent, you want to be self-sufficient in food, you want to be self-sufficient in basic essentials, uh, and uh, you need governments to uh, take uh, control, basically to provide the public infrastructure, uh, the natural monopolies, communications, uh, and uh, healthcare, uh, ed education. Uh, you want to build up your productivity uh, by uh, technology, and often this requires protective tariffs and 
capital controls and subsidies uh, to new capital investment, research and development. Uh, and that involves uh, the government uh, lowering the cost of production and the cost of living by uh, providing uh, basic needs. And finance is, is not really a class. Somehow finance enters, uh, it's not a class in Marx's sense uh, because it's uh, external to the uh, economy of production and consumption and all classes, everybody's a saver uh, and a debtor. All uh, labor's financialized just as uh, uh, the uh, industry is financialized and uh, uh, the uh, infrastructure has been financialized instead of uh, socialized as people had expected in the 19th century. So in that sense, finance works from outside of the economy, uh, including the international economy. And uh, Marx explained in volume three, the dynamics of finance and its debt creation are mathematical and external to the uh, dynamics of the, the real economy of production and consumption. So what's unique today, uh, and this was not anticipated uh, in World War II, uh, is that finance can actually replace industrial capital as uh, the main uh, resource allocator, the main central planner away from government. And the problem with all this, of course, is that finance capitalism tends to, to minimize the role of government so as to replace it and to shift economic uh, planning into its own hands, Wall Street and other financial centers. And uh, its means of control are via international financial organizations like the IMF, the World Bank, the SWIFT system, the Bank for International Settlements, and even the International Criminal Court that uh, criminalizes uh, uh, any attempt to withdraw from this financial system. Right, and 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 so um, one of the things that uh, you know, in in trying to talk about nations as well as classes, domestic as well as international, that we often run up against is this idea that somehow Marx thought that the that you know capitalism and the you know capitalism was inherently internationalist and 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 and, and sort of worldwide, a cosmopolitan, shall we say, global, uh, shall we say. And uh, of course, socialism should be that way. So nations are to be completely, you know, they're sort of a regressive atavistic thing, which we should try to suppress as much as possible. But this, in fact, is not true. You know what, Michael, you were saying about how it is necessary for the state to play a major role in development. Marx understood that very well. So there is this very uh, important saying, you know, Marx is supposed to have come down in favor of free trade in the uh, debates on corn laws, but it was a very conditional type of read, uh, 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 kind of endorsement of free trade because Marx thought that, you know, if free trade hastens the development of capitalism, then maybe we should have free trade. But in the same set of writings in which he, he endorsed free trade, he also pointed out the following, and this is verb, it's a quote, if free traders cannot understand how one nation can grow rich at the expense of another, we need not wonder, these same gentlemen also refuse to understand how one uh, uh, class can enrich itself at the expense of another. So. Uh, this uh, this is a, 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 a very clear uh, a placing of class and nation together in the same frame. 
one classes exploit other classes and nations exploit other classes. So it reveals that Marx is very aware of the structures of imperialism. And equally, as we've talked about many times, Marx was also very aware that in order to develop, states must uh, play a major role. They must implement tariffs to protect their, uh, their infant industries from competition against which they are not yet able to stand up. They must uh, create the credit conditions and the financial conditions for the expansion of productive enterprises and so on. So already for the development of capitalism itself, the conditions that are required so require state intervention that any notion that there is such a thing as free market capitalism, etc., cetera, uh, goes out the window. And of course, the other thing that geopolitical economy also points out is the reason why even in capitalist countries, states always must play a central role is because capitalism is inherently contradictory. And you cannot have a capitalism, uh, pro, uh, you know, continue for any length of time without the state playing a major stabilizing role. So that is why with the development of capitalism, you don't just get the development of classes, you also get the division of the world into the modern nation state system. So class exploitation occurs, but so does national exploitation because essentially the early developers, the early capitalist developers inevitably also become imperialist because, because their capitalisms are contradictory. They try to subordinate other territories, which then can that subordination helps them to deal with the contradictions of their capitalism, whether it is to find outlets for excess commodities and capital or to acquire cheap labor and cheap raw materials, which capitalism needs in uh, in in, in a, 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 ever more as, as it expands. And so finally, what this also shows is that because capitalism prompts imperialism, nationally focused development becomes the essential prerequisite of any form of development for many countries, which is why quite early in the history of capitalism, we're looking at the early 20th century. So you really about a century or a century and a half from the beginnings of industrial capitalism, you already have the appearance of the first socialist challenge to capitalism in the form of the Russian Revolution. So in that sense, uh, these are countries that are essentially saying we cannot have subordination to, to imperialist, capitalist, imperialist countries. We do not have any prospect of developing capitalism. So we are going to develop in a, on a socialist path already. Well, Rick, if you recognize the reality of imperialism, uh, this implies an entire different uh, body of economic theory. Uh, and I had to begin teaching economic theory in the, the 1969 at uh, the New School. And I, I, I really hadn't uh, studied it all the way through my graduate courses uh, because uh, most universities found it just too silly uh, to teach. Uh, the free trade theory assumes that everybody gains from trade uh, and that all trade is voluntary and it's all a choice, free market, uh, and that if you, an absence of tariffs is going to make economies more equal and more uh, competitive. And that's just the opposite of uh, how the world economy actually works because the real effect of free trade is that the dominant uh, countries all became dominant by uh, protecting their industry. First Britain and then the United States and Germany in the 19th century were highly protectionist. And once they uh, had uh, government subsidized uh, industry, 
they then uh, told other countries, don't do what we did. Uh, they uh, don't uh, have uh, government protection. Just uh, buy in the cheapest place. We will give you food and every ag uh, industry and everything that you need much cheaper uh, because we already have the capital in place and you don't. Uh, and uh, the result is that uh, the there was a polarization uh, of the economy. I, I describe all of this in my book, uh, Trade Development and Foreign Debt, which is a history of uh, basically not only free trade theory, but how it was uh, controverted again and again uh, by British, German, and American economists. Uh, all of that is now expurgated from the uh, classical curriculum. Uh, and the, the real result of free trade is uh, uh, when countries are forced into a trade deficit, uh, their currency is going to decline, and then they have to go to the International Monetary Fund that comes in and it imp imposes austerity and specifically anti-labor policies. The IMF's role is to uh, do, uh, aim at what uh, Bill Clinton aimed at when he invited China into the World Trade Organization. You want to keep uh, a pool of uh, labor, what Marx called the reserve army of the unemployed, not in the United States, but in uh, uh, the non-industrialized countries that uh, uh, basically are kept uh, uh, devaluing uh, the price of labor throughout the world. And uh, that turns the phenomenon of U.S.-centered imperialism into a global class war. Um Right, Michael. So shall we go on to the next uh, point sure. we want to make, which is that we, we should, um, that, that geopolitical economy permits us to understand class and national exploitation together. Just as we put class and nation together in the same frame, we also put class and national exploitation in the same frame. And this is exactly, so you have class uh, 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 exploitation within a country that produces a certain kind of class power within a country. So at the, at the international plane, uh, what geopolitical economy explains is that uh, the attempt by some powerful countries to subjugate other countries creates the structures of imperialism. So you have to understand the two together. And both forms of exploitation, that is to say class exploitation and the exploitation of other nations produce contradictions because capital essentially, contradictions mean that capital would like usually to have its cake and eat it too, to have something and its opposite. And it can't always have that. So within a country, class exploitation produces a, a, a resistance from the working class. It produces crisis of underconsumption and overproduction. It produces crisis of uh, falling rates of profit and all these things. And internationally as well, international exploitation also produces resistance to it, which is why you have, for example, uh, the for formations like the BRICS or uh, struggles for national independence, as we had in the early part of the 20th century, the uh, non-aligned movement, and today the BRICS and all these institutions, they're not perfect. They are far from uh, uh, adequate to what is needed, but they are steps in the direction of resisting imperialism and imperial exploitation, just as trade unions and political parties are steps towards resisting class exploitation. So our ongoing discussion of the BRICS and the US sanctions and the US NATO war against Russia and China is all about what policies countries can take to liberate their economies and their governments from the US attack. Uh, uh, the US called any government protection interference. 
uh, is if the United States do, uh, does not uh, interfere. Any defense is called interference and a distortion of the market as if the market is set by U.S. central planners uh, on Wall Street and in the State Department uh, to create a world in which the United States will suck all of the surplus from the rest of the world into it, uh, its own uh, economy as if this is natural. And if you recognize that the essence of this a unipolar U.S. strategy is finance, that that uh, not necessarily military. Uh, obviously, uh, they're going to grab uh, the oil of Syria, grab uh, illegally the oil of Iraq. Uh, uh, but uh, it's by finance that they can operate much without the, the military overhead. Well, then uh, we, this is why we focused on de-dollarization and what that means in practice, uh, starting with the most obvious policy, uh, simply avoiding the use of the dollar and pricing trade in their own currencies, making swaps. Uh, uh, the question is how are they going to go on to the next stage? And that's, that's really going to be uh, how uh, involved restructuring their domestic economy as well as the international economy. Yeah, and you know, uh, uh, taking imperialism seriously also, I mean, the reason why we emphasize this is that in so much of the dominant discourse, you have uh, imperialism is completely erased. Like, for example, I was listening to all the commentary on the BRICS in the mainstream press. And as I was listening, I thought, OK, so these people are comparing BRICS and the G7 and BRICS and the G20 as though there is no history of imperialism, as though the G7 is not, in fact, a collection of the former imperialist countries and still would be imperialist countries that are trying to, to control the world. So, in, so recognizing imperialism requires jettisoning all those sanitized expressions. For example, instead of talking about U.S. imperialism, people use terms like U.S. hegemony. The U.S. has never achieved anything like hegemony, as I've argued in geopolitical economy. But what we do have are ceaseless attempts to try to achieve that, which has which have been very destructive, which have caused ceaseless wars around the world and so on. You have terms like globalization. I find it so appalling that the term globalization became so popular, not just in the mainstream, but also among many who call themselves critical and even Marxist scholars. Why is that? Because they use terms like globalization, uh, or rather by using terms like globalization, what we are completely forgetting is that this is an attempt to force the rest of the world to open up to the imperialism and corporate power of the West. The, all the free trade and free market is not necessarily for the West. It's there to open up the rest of the world's economies, the poor countries, so that they are available as markets and investment outlets, but equally importantly as sources of cheap labor and raw materials so uh, words like and and for example also the use of the term globalization also means that you have to say that to, uh, from in the late from the late 20th century onwards you got a second wave of globalization whereas in the late 19th and early 20th century there had been a previous wave of globalization I mean, what are you talking about? That was not a wave of globalization. That was a wave of imperialism. And the competitive imperialism that, uh, uh, that was in train at that time, that was occurring at that time, culminated in the First World War and eventually also the Second World War, because the Second World War occurred ultimately, because at the end of the First World War, the Versailles, so-called Versailles settlement settled nothing.
it simply laid the groundwork for a new war to emerge. So 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 taking imperialism seriously uh, involves recognizing that it also involves recognizing that today's discourse of human rights and democracy and so on is just the the the, the dressed up the sort of the, the the old discourse of the civilizing mission and the white man's burden and so on in a new dress so, uh, so that's that's uh, it involves recognizing and seeing right through that, which unfortunately too many people don't do, and which is why we feel we we need to keep saying this. Uh, also, the the idea of the rules based international order. The fact of the matter is, and this is also quite interesting, because if you take in imperialism seriously, you would recognize that the United Nations itself is uh, the formation of the United Nations and the Charter and so on were themselves a result of the struggle on the of of the vast masses of the people and nations of the world against imperialism the recognition of sovereign equality etc even though they were compromised but the fact that they had to be recognized in principle and only then compromised was an achievement of of these groups and institutions like nato were created precisely because the imperialist countries did not want to have to deal with the unwashed masses of the world in institutions like the United Nations. And one final point, you know, back in the day, in the early days of capitalism and well into the 20th century, the Western world, the imperialist world, set a standard of civilization. They said that if a country meets the standard of civilization, which means if they are another imperialist country, then they will be dealt with, you know, with all the respect due to another sovereign country, you know, with limits on how they would be dealt with in war as well as in peace and commerce and so on. But of course, this did not include the vast majority of the countries of the world that were regarded as uncivilized against whom anything could be done the most brutal acts of warfare the most uh, 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 the most um, life threatening sanctions and so on could be used and this kind of thinking continues it doesn't take that name but in the name of human rights and democracy when sanctions are imposed on people this is just a new standard of civilization being imposed so taking imperialism seriously involves recognizing all these things well i think that what uh, neither marx nor uh, even lenin anticipated uh, after world war one was uh, that the most problematic uh, uh, international uh, disturbance was going to be not uh, private sector debt, but intergovernmental debt. Uh, and that's what led to the, uh, you just mentioned the Treaty of Versailles, uh, which uh, really meant uh, something radical that Europe had never experienced after any of its wars, uh, the Napoleonic Wars and the early wars, all of the allies would uh, forgive all of the uh, mutual support and the cost of uh, uh, fighting the war together. And they expected that uh, the United States would, uh, there were not going to be any inter-allied deaths. Uh, but the United States said, well, before uh, we entered World War I, we let you fight it out, you know, so we could come in, send a few troops, and then claim that uh, we saved it all. And uh, you owe us uh, a lot of money. You owe us so much money that you're going to, you European countries are going to have to go into depression for the next 20 years, uh, uh, but uh, a debt has to be paid. And the Europeans said, well, our whole Western civilization is based on the principle that all debts have to be paid. If you say we owe you the money, 
we're willing to go into uh, 20 years of depression. Uh, the silver lining is this is going to really hurt the labor force and we can hold them down and uh, we can get even, uh, uh, the class war will be won in Europe and we can make Germany pay. Uh, and Germany was the number of the most uh, potentially industrialized uh, uh, continental European country. Uh, Germany was the country that uh, had the most uh, industrialized uh, banking system. And uh, uh, Europe, uh, the Allies were just as happy to crush Germany in order to get the money for the Allies to pay the United States uh, 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 foreign debt. That's what my whole super imperialism is about that. And I, uh, I uh, don't need to uh, go over it here again, but uh, what, all of this uh, inter this role of uh, government not is leading uh, to uh, socialist development, but to, is the leading of finance uh, and uh, through government as the mode of imperialism, even more than the private sector, was completely unanticipated. Uh, he, uh, even Marx, uh, when he gave a speech before the Chartists, uh, uh, in the mid-19th century, said, uh, you know, strangely as it might seem, he endorsed free trade with India because he said uh, uh, the, uh, the structure, the dynamics of industrial capitalism are so powerful that it's a new mode of production and it's going to modernize the backward countries like India, uh, other Asia, Africa, South America. He thought that uh, somehow British and uh, trade and other capitalist countries trading with the rest of the world was going to uh, involve replicating their system and uh, making them industrial capitalist countries too, leading to a kind of equality that would all end up uh, moving towards socialism ultimately. Uh, but that isn't what happened. Uh, instead, uh, the trade has been, uh, imposed backwardness on countries uh, by supporting client oligarchies, supporting military dictatorships and, uh, and making them trade dependent, not independent, uh, and most of all, preventing their governments from playing the role that governments played in the industrial capitalist takeoff uh, in uh, England, Germany, and the United States. Uh, governments is providing basic infrastructure uh, and natural monopolies uh, for the, uh, uh, for, for the, uh, private industrial sector. Well, finance capitalism has uh, basically financial, has taken these uh, infrastructure uh, investments and made them all uh, financial exercises. Nobody expected that countries would all move against what was the financial, self, the economic self-interest of industrial capitalism to be something as twisted as uh, what's actually emerged from a uh, World, World War One, and especially World War II, uh, and especially uh, uh, the uh, Korean and Vietnam Wars of the United States that led to the dollar standard. Well, you know, Michael, I think you are you you made two points about Marx and what he thought, uh, which I find I couldn't quite agree completely. In fact, I couldn't quite agree because. First of all, uh, you you talked about how uh, you thought that Marx uh, Marx thought that capitalism and imperialism were going to develop India. That is not so. In fact, if you read the 
the pamphlet, The Future Results of British Rule in India, Marx ends by saying that, and not only he qualifies this by saying that the British are not doing this out of any kindness of their heart or anything, but that you and I know. I don't think you would disagree with that. But he specifically points out that the only way in which India will really enjoy the fruits of development is if there is a socialist revolution in England or equally if there is an independent, if India gains independence. So there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that while Marx thought that there would be some inadvertent uh, forms of development in India, he, he actually, even back then, you know, in the early, late 1840s and early 1850s, Marx was very clear that national independence was a prerequisite to development for the reasons exactly that you have recognized. All I want to say is Marx recognized it too. And of course, what I've shown in various of my writings is that Marx actually understood very well the centrality of the role of the state in economic development. And then the second point, I think you, of course, rightly point out that Marx did not anticipate the governmentalization of finance. And I, I mean, at one level, I agree with you. But then, you know, it's a bit like saying that Aristotle did not imagine that there were aeroplanes, you know, sure. I mean, there's a certain, no. you know, so the thing is that uh, in, in a certain sense, it's really worth reflecting on that a little bit, because I think you raised some very good points. So if Basically, if you look at what Marx, Marx's conception was, you know, what would, how would capitalism develop and why was socialism necessary and how would it come about? Essentially, what Marx is saying, if you examine this clearly, and I bring this out very clearly in my latest book, Capitalism, Coronavirus and War, in a fairly long discussion about this, what Marx is basically saying is that Capitalism requires competition. Competition naturally results in monopoly. And once a capitalist economy reaches the monopoly phase in which most sectors of the economy are dominated by one or a small number of big corporations. At that point, society will have become ready. Capitalism will become ready for socialism. It will, because it's very simple. What he's saying is that insofar as capitalism is historically progressive, insofar as capitalism, by dragging humanity through much mud and gore, and by creating a lot of uh, misery and, and, and anarchy, nevertheless develops the forces of production, it is because of the because of the virtues of competition. But once competition is no longer there, there is no reason to keep capitalism. So capitalism had already reached its monopoly phase in the early part of the 20th century. And since then, Essentially, we have been the humanity has been suffering the cost of keeping capitalism alive in a small number of countries. You see, well, you're absolutely right about uh, uh, what Marx uh, said that there had to be a revolution. Uh, but he said a revolution is what in uh, industrial capitalism is all about. He said industrial capitalism is revolutionary because in England and Europe, it's gotten rid of feudalism. It's, uh, it's, it's strategy of industrial capitalism is to free economies from the landlord monopoly, from the landlord class and from predatory finance. So when he said he expected capitalism to spread to the rest of the world, he meant the capitalist revolution against backwardness, the revolution against feudal uh, monopoly and, and the revolution that he thought would indeed lead to socialism. So uh, uh, you're right. Marx took an overall broad social view uh, of economics and didn't just uh, uh, limit economics to uh, 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 
prices and incomes. He, it was a transformation of society that Marx thought was going, going to uh, appear towards uh, uh, socialism. And that's what was, has been detracked, right. untracked by World War One and everything the last century has seen. This We're country. going to have to reserve this point for our discussions of, of rent, because I think okay. that the, the revolution you're talking about is already it's already Ricardo's point. And then Marx, of course, goes further than that. But but let's let's go on. So, of course, we also uh, uh, have already pointed out our next point, which is that our understanding is much closer to Marx, as you will have seen in our discussion uh, we just had about the finer points of, of Marx. And the key point that people forget about Marx, even many so-called Marxists, is that Marx understood that capitalism was contradictory. This is often forgotten. And if it wasn't contradictory, then we wouldn't have to get rid of it. And we, we wouldn't have imperialism. But both of these things are true. The next point then is that uh, we understand that capitalism is contradictory and crisis prone. Uh, my well, please yeah, go ahead. Yeah. The crisis of today's finance capitalism uh, is not one of uh, domestic overproduction within the production and consumption, uh, the real economy. Uh, it turned out to be debt deflation. Uh, and internationally, the foreign dollar debt burden has become a kind of neo-colonial leverage to impose austerity, as we've said, uh, and other anti-labor policies on uh, the non-U.S. Uh, 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 US economies. So the kind of uh, uh, crises and internal contradiction that the international economy is uh, suffering now as it's being polarized uh, is not, the, not basically what uh, Marx talked about in volume one, Although if you read volume two and three, uh, you can see his focus on finance certainly have filled that out. Uh, so let's talk a, a bit about what this crisis is and the way it's taking form today. Uh, the United States government uh, is the world's largest debtor. Uh, and it says, we're the unique nation. We're the only country that does not have to pay our foreign debt. And in fact, there's no way that the government for the foreign debt which means the bank reserves of the whole rest of the world that are kept in dollars, none of this can be repaid. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it's just, uh, they can trade it with each other, but they're never supposed to ask to be repaid. Only the US private sector and the US government can ask other countries to repay their debt. That is the internal contradiction that has driven uh, the, uh, the world economy apart and is splitting it and is forcing other countries to either face permanent uh, sort of neo-feudal dependency on the United States or to say, well, we get to develop too. It's not going to be just a monopoly of the European garden uh, keeping our jungle uh, as a jungle. So uh, I think the basic point that we're making is that the global majority needs public investment in infrastructure. It needs to modernize the economy. Uh, and it need to create prosperity, and that means freeing their economies from U.S. dollar debt. Uh, it's bad debt and in the sense that it can only be repaid by siphoning off their economic surplus, by forcing them into bankruptcy uh, financially, uh, and by stifling their growth. That's the contradiction, that the European garden can grow and the jungle cannot grow uh, because any growth that it has is going to take the form of uh, paying debt service uh, to uh, holders of U.S. dollar bombs, bonds, including their own domestic 
oligarchy. Uh, most uh, dollar debt of Argentina isn't really owed to the United States, although it's in dollars, it's owed to the Argentine ruling class uh, that holds its uh, debt in the form of dollars uh, while it wrecks uh, the Argentina economy. It's been doing that now for an entire century. That's why I was a little surprised to see Argentina included in the uh, uh, new members of the BRICS uh, uh, yesterday. I'm not sure exactly how uh, you can have Argentina as a full-fledged BRIC member as long as it, uh, uh, its oligarchy supports uh, uh, the United States and remains in control of the government. Well, that's a very interesting point, Michael. And I would say that uh, it's very likely that that oligarchy itself has become considerably less uh, powerful and it is also itself running out of options. It can no longer rely on the United States. But we will have to see. But I just want to come back to many of the points you were raising. So the point we're making is that capitalism is contradictory and crisis prone. And one of the things you pointed out is that, you know, uh, the the somehow the garden is growing and, and, and the jungle is not. But the reality is the opposite. The reason why this BRICS summit is so historic, the reason why the, the West is essentially so afraid of what's going on uh, uh, at summits like the Johannesburg summit is precisely that the so-called garden, the European countries, the imperialist countries have been trapped in a, in a syndrome of slow growth for the last several decades. Whereas these other countries, China in particular, which is why, of course, every opportunity is taken in the Western press to tell you why China's growth is going to end very soon. But China, of course, and many other of these so-called jungle countries or what Trump used to call shithole countries. Well, those shithole countries are doing much better than you folks. So this is, this is of course, a, a major issue. But I also wanted to say, you know, I completely agree with you that the current at that at the this moment of crisis in the world and i would say that quite frankly we've been living in a crisis ridden world for the last many decades really going back to the 1970s because that crisis that hit in the 1970s was never resolved neoliberalism was trotted out as a solution to the crisis but it never resolved the crisis it never restored capitalism's vigor and instead it simply saddled the world economy with the debt that you're talking about and with the financial speculation and financialization that you're talking about but if you're trying to understand the whole crisis, I would say, first of all, that any given crisis is never any one thing. It's Of course, there is a financial crisis today, but today's crisis is composed both of uh, uh, today's crisis is composed of a financial crisis, but there is also an underlying productive crisis, a crisis of low investment, low growth, low profits, etc. Furthermore, there is a crisis of not sufficiently expanding demand, which has been with us for a long time. So, you know, one of the ways I've tried to deal with this is that, you know, Marx uh, and I've, I've, I've uh, actually uh, in my latest book, I have a, the most developed form of that table. I've actually created a table, you know, because in capitalism, there are at least two forms of crisis. One is vertical, that is, it has to do with the exploitation of the working class by the capitalist class, and the other is horizontal. It has to do with the very ways in which various capitalists relate to one another, namely via competition. So both the mechanisms of competition and exploitation lead to crisis, and they lead to crisis in practically every sphere that capitalism requires for its existence. So there are the two core spheres 
of value production, namely production and uh, exchange or 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 or, or yeah, uh, and markets, basically the production and markets. And there you have four different forms of 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 uh, crises that can occur, contradictions that occur, and then. There are other realms that have to be transformed in order for capitalism to exist. Capitalism must create money. It must create credit mechanisms. It must have a state. It must relate to the environment and, and so on, essentially by privatizing it. And of course, then once you create states, there are international relations. So in practically every one of these spheres, there are forms of crises. There are, uh, monetary management can lead to deflation or it can lead to inflation. Etc. Etc. So there are many price. There are credit crises and, and and so on. So there are many forms of crises, and any given capitalist crisis is usually a concatenation of several different crisis mechanisms that are working at the same time. But nevertheless, yeah. I mean, having said that, I, I completely agree that 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 um, that capitalism is crisis prone and 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 contradictory. And today. The financial crisis we have today is underlain by a crisis of the productive system itself, which is partly also why finance accumulates, because it's when you don't have enough investment opportunities, productive investment opportunities, that people hold back their money and they uh, invest in uh, uh, in speculation rather than production. It's when companies are not borrowing to invest productively that you have to go out and find all the uh, workers who will borrow from you in order to finance their cars and their education and their uh, and their um, um, uh, houses and so on. So underlying this, there is a, 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 a productive uh, a crisis as well. But yes, on top of that productive crisis has been built over the last many decades, layer upon layer of financial crises. Well, you can see the, the, uh, uh, the crisis in the United States. Uh, why cannot there be investment in the United States? The, uh, uh, the large, largest companies, the uh, Standard & Poor uh, 500, have spent 92% uh, of their uh, profits, of their uh, net income, on stock buybacks and on paying out as dividends. Only 8% is to invest. They can't find anything to invest in. Uh, Apple has said, we, we cannot find a single penny uh, to invest uh, new. So we're paying uh, more money in stock buybacks and dividends than we're uh, actually uh, investing. We're asset stripping. And uh, finance capitalism is primarily extractive. Uh, the, it has loaded the economy down with debt so much by debt financed housing, by, uh, by making its uh, labor have to uh, earn a high enough wage to pay uh, its housing debt, uh, its education debt, its automobile debt, its credit card debt, that it's unemployable. So of course there are no investment opportunities left in the United States and Western Europe. That's why the garden is deindustrializing and is going to turn into a jungle. Uh, because the only way that you can make money is financially by asset stripping, by deindustrializing your economy, by cannibalizing it. And that's uh, the clearest in the US and British economies. That's what Thatcherism and Reaganomics is uh, all about.
Um, absolutely. And uh, we are nearly at an hour. So I think and it's just as well because we are down to our final point. And that is that we understand in this show, uh, in this geopolitical economy hour, that imperialism is declining. It's very fashionable to show how radical you are by, by saying that, you know, imperialism was always very strong and it's either just as strong today as it ever was or stronger today than it ever was. But the fact of the matter is that the large part of the present crisis among the many contradictions of capitalism that uh, are part of the present crisis is the simple fact that imperialism has been declining for a very long time. And today it has reached a point, a very critical point, where it looks as though the kind of control that the imperialist countries could exercise over the rest of the world is slipping from its grasp. Well, the pre uh, down through World War uh, One, uh, you had uh, the German banking system was highly industrialized. It was working efficiently uh, with governments and heavy industry, uh, but that's not the way the rest of the world went. It took the Anglo-Dutch uh, American system, and uh, it's declining because uh, this system uh, basically is like that of the late Roman Empire. Uh, it created. Uh, great wealth for the wealthiest one percent or the ten percent but it, it uh, impoverished the 90 90 percent uh and if you're going to impoverish the market uh then uh you're going to have the kind of crisis that uh, uh marx uh, uh described uh and yet marx did not think see that it would nobody anticipated that it would be uh, a financial crisis because marx hoped that in industrial capitalism self-interest would lead it to uh, prevent uh, finance from operating the way it used to by what he called usury capital uh, and actually uh, become uh, productive. Uh, the, uh, the, the Western economies since World War I have erased the whole distinction between productive and unproductive investment, productive and unproductive labor. Uh, the GDP and national income accounts don't draw any distinction between productive production and what is really just a transfer payments to the rentier sector, to the finance, insurance, and real estate sector, or, or to monopolies. So there's not even a way that the uh, seemingly empirical statistics can explain why imperialism and why finance capitalism uh, is uh, declining. Yeah, and 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 you know too, and again, there's just so much to say here, but we'll just end by a couple of more points. But you know, imperialism essentially is declining the way I look at it because, you know, think about it this way: the high point of imperialism, since which point it has been declining gradually, too slowly for me, but nevertheless declining, is 1914. 1914 was the high point of imperialism. The uh, uh, in the previous decades, not only had Britain acquired its big empire, but a number of other countries appeared that they'd also tried to acquire empires. And so the world was essentially divided up into these big empires. So that was a high point of imperialism, but it was also the moment at which the big crisis of the imperialist world order broke. Uh, the wars between the imperial powers substantially weakened them. Uh, and then that combined with the rise of communism, uh, and the and, and and the struggles of for decolonization in third world countries uh, uh, essentially put the world onto the long and slow road of the decline of imperialism and so on. Uh, but that moment also coincided with, I would say, the peak of capitalism, according to Marx anyway, because really, 
by this point in time, capitalism in the in its homelands had already entered the monopoly phase. Uh, at that point, capitalism really didn't have that much more to give to the rest of the world, I mean, to, to the world in general. That is to say, it had done what it could in terms of developing the forces of production. And now the, the, the point was that they would be better developed if we had other forms of production, socialists, whatever, some or the other version of socialism. So, and this was, by the way, witnessed when you saw that the Soviet Union, once it was stabilized, it managed to become the second industrial power in the world in a matter of decades. From being the most backward country in Europe, it became the second industrial power because it showed you what planned production could do. So, uh, and also, of course, the very fact that capitalism had reached the monopoly phase and what we, what Hilferding called the finance capital phase in which large banks essentially uh, uh, controlled vast swathes of the productive apparatus, essentially what this told you is that the moment for planning had already come because that's what a big corporation is. It's a giant planned economy. So the only question that arises is why should we allow these giant planned economies which only exist because of our labor, which only exist because we create the laws and, 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 and so on that allow them to exist. So why not socialize them? That was a sense in which the moment for socialism had come. And so, of course, we have had now socialistic experiments as well, and they have also stood up against capitalism. Uh, but the point is that in the homelands of capitalism, what we are witnessing today is the is the cost that both the working people of these countries as well as the rest of humanity is paying for keeping capitalism alive in these countries. Uh, coming back to the BRICS in, in closing, I it's one cannot be uh, can, cannot but be aware that most of the countries of the BRICS are not socialist. But the interesting thing is that in practically every case you can show that where they have done well, where they have alleviated poverty or industrialized or what have you, they have done so by the adoption of non-capitalist means. And it is the freedom to adopt such means which is the crucial issue at stake in the confrontation between this group of countries and the G7. Well, I think that what you're, we've been describing is that uh, U.S. imperialism has backfired to destroy its own economy. And above all, by deindustrializing and deunionizing uh, the labor force, by focusing on uh, external exploitation of what America can get from other countries. Instead of creating an economic surplus at home from within, the United States has followed the same kind of self-destructive dynamic uh, that destroyed the Roman Empire. It cannot reindustrialize, leaving the uh, debt overhead in place any more than uh, the BRICS countries can industrialize without freeing themselves uh, from their foreign debt overhead. Because the financial system has priced uh, U.S. labor out of world markets uh, as a result of making labor pay for what we've described uh, all along, the housing, education, health care, uh, et cetera. Uh, and uh, yet the uh, economic, economic historians now say, well, you know, there really wasn't a dark age because the wealthiest 1% of Romans uh, in the late Roman Empire got so rich that the economy actually grew. It's true that 99% of the labor were reduced to serfdom, but that 1% actually made a growing economy. 
Well, that's what uh, is seems to be happening in, uh, that's Bidenomics. That seems to be what's happening in the U.S. economy now. The wealthiest 1% to 10% are making so much money that it exceeds the, uh, the deprivation and the indebtedness and the reduction and shrinkage of the 99% economy. Uh, and, and so uh, the only hope that the United States has of maintaining this kind of prosperity for the wealthiest uh, uh, financial class is to freeze the status quo, to block any kind of active government policies to promote labor and industry at home or abroad. And uh, the industrial capitalism uh, uh, today is uh, uh, a, a, a dinosaur. Uh, it's what would lead, uh, leading the late 19th century uh, onwards to uh, what seemed to be uh, socialism, but instead uh, we've got finance capitalism. And if you have knowledge, if you explain what we're going to be doing in the uh, coming shows of how this, uh, this mixed economy strategy, uh, uh, every economy that's developed has been a mixed economy with the government to play a major role. Uh, if you let the private financial interests take over this role of government, uh, you're going to have the kind of shrinkage that's deindustrialized the U.S. economy. And uh, that uh, uh, role of government has to be the core uh, focus of uh, how the BRICS economies are going to develop. And that requires freeing themselves from the dynamics of uh, uh, finance capitalism and finance imperialism that we've been discussing throughout all of our shows. Yes, exactly, Michael. So let me just bring this to a close by making one final comment, which is really many of the secrets of what is the United States, when what is the United States is a long list, industrial decline, financialization, inequality, social breakdown, political logjam, you name it, cultural uh, uh, decay, all of this is happening. The one clue to understanding why all of this is happening is that the United States got its chance to try to, to, to be the leading imperialist country and grabbed it with both hands precisely at the moment when imperialism was actually declining. So with that thought, let's just let's bring this to a close. Uh, we will be back in September, uh, hopefully uh, with many other interesting shows. So until then, uh, thanks for watching and uh, looking, looking forward to doing this again uh, in a few weeks. Bye-bye.